You are listening to Studying Pixels, a JRPG podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. There's a very simple question that we urgently need to talk about, Dan. And that question is, do JRPGs need to be made in Japan? What do you think? It is a deceptively simple question because you posed this to me a little while ago and I've been thinking about it ever since. And I think the answer is, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's complicated indeed. I'm pondering and pondering. I think I'm going to err on the side of no, they do not need to be made in Japan. Actually, if we wanted to, we could cheese the question and we could say, <laughs> well, of course, if we hypothetically took a developer team, a Japanese developer team, and we would just take them and relocate the entire team as such outside of Japan, move the entire office to Poland, then there's no reason for why we shouldn't call that game a JRPG. Because there's nothing specific attached to the soil of Japan or something. Right. Or to the geographic unit that the country is that would make it Japanese. There are lots of other factors involved, which we're going to address in a moment. But if we wanted to cheese the question in that way, then I would say it's a clear no. But of course, it's not as simple as that. No, and I think what we're going to be looking at is what do we actually think of when we think of the term JRPG? Because I don't think that the answer is, as you said, something that comes from Japan, necessarily. It's something more inherent to the game, to the story, the characters, maybe the aesthetics, that seems to be transcendental of where it comes from a little bit. Exactly, yeah. We're going to look into genre discourse, of course. We're going to look into what makes JRPGs different from other kinds of RPGs, such as notably Western RPGs. Uh, we're going to look also into famous JRPGs in quotation marks that have not been made in Japan and all sorts of interesting angles to really probe this question and challenge our own assumptions. Before we get into that, though, I want to briefly remind you that if you do like the vibe of this show and if you want to help us make it happen then you can do that by supporting us and becoming a studying pixels plus member where you can get all of our episodes entirely ad free a lovely sticker and monthly plus episodes they're super interesting and sometimes even helpful in your process of studying video games if you're curious about that then go to studyingpixels.com/plus to find out more 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And here we are talking about the question of whether JRPGs need to be made in Japan. I actually started thinking about this because I listened to a super interesting podcast by a couple of colleagues that I very much cherish. The podcast is called Behind the Screens. Now, it is in German, but I do know that we have quite a listenership in Germany as well. And if you're curious about that show, I would highly recommend checking it out. They are three psychologists talking about video games from a specifically psychological angle, and they did an episode on JRPGs. As part of that episode, I found it super interesting they addressed this kind of question of what are JRPGs even? And it's a more broad conversation, of course, than the one that we're going to have here because we want to really focus on that one particular question. Do JRPGs need to be made in Japan to be called JRPGs? And this ties into the broad field and dangerous field of genre discourse. Genre discourse, that is in the, in the entire area of media studies, Genre discourse is like Mordor. <laughs> that is like where people say, like, Simba, don't A go dark over place. there. Yeah. <laughs> the Shadowlands, where you hear like maniacal laughter, where people are saying, like, what, what even is a comedy? <laughs> Nobody can possibly know. It is really much more complicated than one would at first glance assume, because of course, we all have a kind of implicit understanding of. What is a thriller? What is a comedy? What is a drama? And we can tell them apart. When we know, so this is a horror film, then we have some kind of vague understanding of what a horror film is, right? Yeah, but it gets really complicated really fast because as any fan of movies or music for that matter would know, there's probably going to be an umbrella genre that things fall under. So you can say, okay, this is a comedy. But then you might say, well, it's a slapstick comedy or it's a dark comedy or it's a dry, witty comedy, right? And a romantic comedy. A romantic comedy. And so all of a sudden you're in the weeds with, okay, how do we define the subgenres? How do we how do we look at all of these different components that would technically fall under that umbrella description, but are different enough that they almost feel like they're outside of it? They kind of exist on the edges of these genres, and they are very keen on building new hybrid genres yeah. or merging things together. These are all matters and terms, really, that are in flux. They change over time. What it means to be, let's say, a, a mystery story or a romantic comedy has changed significantly over time. And... With video games, things get a little bit more complicated even than that. Because, yeah, we have these literary genres. We have, of course, things like the drama. We've got the comedy. We've got the theatrical genres. We've got film-specific genres that we've just mentioned, such as romantic comedy. And then when we look at games, there's a whole nother layer because we've got the entire domain of rule systems and interactions. Often enough, when we think of video game genres, I think at its core... We like to use genre attributions that describe what you do in the game, such as... Definitely. Yeah, the jump and run. I mean, in a jump and run, you literally say, what do you do? You jump and you run. In a shooter, you shoot, you know? In a puzzle game, you puzzle. And then you look into 
it's almost like a order of operations, like in a math problem, <laughs> where you say with a video game, you almost start with the functionality genre, and then you go into the more literary genre. So a real-time strategy game, for example, you can say that XCOM and Mario plus Rabbids are both real-time strategy games, but you would not say they're in the same literary genre, <laughs> I don't think. Well, but they are also, they're turn-based strategy games, right? Because real-time would be something like StarCraft and Age of Empires, and they are more like turn-based or tactical. And there you go, StarCraft and Age of Empires. You wouldn't call those the same literary genre by any stretch, right? Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just wanted to make the XCOM and Mario plus Rabbids comparison. <laughs> I got ahead of myself. But that's the thing, is that you look at them and you think, well, there's definitely some connective tissue here in terms of the gameplay, but they're wildly different. Yes, they're wildly different. And I mean, you brought in now this aspect of time where we, it's not only about what we do, but it's also in what kind of time and what, and what kind of time pressure or pacing are we doing things. Real-time strategy is completely different from turn-based strategy, is completely different from these like, you know, 4X strategy games that are like, oh, yeah. you know, on, on a massive <laughs> scale, such as Civilization, where you also usually take turns. And things get even more complicated as things like perspective come into play. We disambiguate between a first-person shooter, such as Call of Duty or Battlefield, and a third-person shooter, where you look over the shoulder of the character so there are all kinds of aspects that come to play. And this is not even considering that, of course, we can apply genres like the drama and the comedy and the mystery to video games as well. So we've got like a whole cloud of genre terminology and ascriptions that we can make to games. And often enough, that's kind of what I just wanted to emphasize. It might seem like a math equation at first, but there's no logical way to deduce a genre and no exact way to determine what kind of genre is that game. I think, too, we mentioned that it evolves over time. And when there are different iterations on genre and people who've grown up with a particular type of genre that then make their own entries into that genre, things change very drastically. I would almost want to start by saying that I would think that a couple of decades ago, maybe even 30 years ago, you would have the umbrella genre of role-playing game in video games. You would have a flowchart that would then go to Western RPGs, things that are more akin to Dungeons & Dragons type gameplay. And then there's the JRPG, which at first it just sort of feels like, okay, well, those are the games that came from Japan. But then as time goes on, people start dissecting, well, why were those different from the Western RPGs? And then people start looking at the themes and the tropes and the aesthetics that emerged from JRPGs and started making their own versions of that that were not in Japan. So all of a sudden, things get very complicated very quickly. Yeah, you just implicitly made that distinction already between a JRPG and a Western RPG. And I would want to ask you, what is important for you when it comes to making that distinction? What disambiguates a Western RPG from a JRPG. Well, now you've put me on the spot. This is the tricky thing about genre discourse is that you take things for granted. And I would say a good place to start for me when talking about genres, and I don't have a huge media background, but this is just sort of where I go. I immediately think, okay, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I think about a Western RPG and a JRPG? And I think for me, I think of a Western RPG, a video game like Oblivion, The Elder Scrolls Oblivion. That to me feels like a Western RPG. 
And when I ask myself why, I think, okay, well, it has sort of a medieval setting, sort of a European medieval setting. It deals with swords and magic, but in a knights and bandits kind of way. And it also deals with dragons and it deals with maybe demons, you know, and these things that I would expect to find maybe in a Lord of the Rings story. Whereas a JRPG, I think of something like Final Fantasy, where there are those European elements, but there's also, there's something more about kind of the nature of fate and the nature of time and these deep character connections that you make between your party members. That's another big thing. Often Western RPGs will be focused on one person, whereas a JRPG, in my mind, is focused on the party dynamic. These are the kinds of things that start coming to mind, and you can already tell you out there listening that well, wait a minute, there are JRPGs that focus on one person that deal with demons, and there are Western RPGs that focus on parties and deal with time and fate. So what are you talking about, Dan? <laughs> yeah, exactly, because I was about to say, immediately I thought of things like Dragon Age, Oh yeah, which is totally focused on building up a party and developing deep kind of relationships. Also Mass Effect. Oh yeah. Or Baldur's Gate. All of those are considered to be... Western RPGs, I would say. Right. And completely different mechanics, completely different emphasis on different systems, but all focused on parties. So I think the party, in comparison to the lone hero, I think it is something that is probably a bit more prevalent when it comes to JRPGs, because from what I can recall, at least when I spontaneously think of things like Final Fantasy as a JRPG, or Dragon Quest. Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger. Those games... Most of the JRPGs that spontaneously come to mind, whether it be established series or new coming, upcoming games such as, you know, think of Octopath Traveler. Oh, sure. Yeah. Strongly emphasizing parties, you know, being there together as a collective, which would, at first glance at least, also make sense because there is a stronger sense, arguably a stronger sense of solidarity and community in Japan than it is in a, let's say, U.S. American or Western society, which is more focused on individualism and, you know, neoliberalism. You brought up Mass Effect, and I think that that's a really interesting example of this, where particularly Mass Effect 2, it's about building a party of people that you can rely on, but there's definitely a sense that Commander Shepard is the hero and that everybody is sort of working to help Commander Shepard. Whereas I think about Cloud in Final Fantasy VII, Sure, he's the protagonist, I would say. The story is largely about him. But there are so many parts in that story where you literally control different characters for parts of the story to help cohese the party and make sure that the world is okay, where Cloud is completely absent. That's a distinction where if I were to think, okay, is this game about one person or is it about a person's connection to other people? I might think it's either a Western or a JRPG at that point. I've got a question. You said already things like dragons. They can be prevalent in either of these areas. We've got something like Skyrim, which is totally about dragons, but we've also got a lot of Japanese role-playing games that are super engaged with dragons jumping around, controlling dragons, fighting with dragons. But something that I can't quite pinpoint in a JRPG would be the aspect or the degree of simulation. When I say simulation, what I mean is if you think of games such as Skyrim or the Elder Scrolls games, but also Baldur's Gate and many other Fallout, of course, then those games have gigantic open worlds where several factors are in play that influence one another. 
where, for example, you can totally accidentally kill an important NPC and that cuts off an entire quest line. Right. Or you can, like, in Skyrim, just collect 500 cheese wheels and roll them down a hill and just see what happens, you know? <laughs> yeah. So there's something very, like a simulational playground. Whereas in JRPGs, I think of them as being a little bit more narrative focused, as in telling a story. Often enough, contrives players of experimental freedom. I have so far at least not played a JRPG where I could do something like that, like almost break the world because of these simulational aspects. I agree. And I would use the term, so you, you said the idea of a simulation with Western RPGs like the Elder Scrolls games, but also I would say Mass Effect. I would also say as much as this is a different kind of game, like the Diablo franchise, there's a sense of randomness to those games that encourages exploration to find certain things. Whereas in a Final Fantasy or a Dragon Quest or Legend of Dragoon, any of these classic JRPGs that we think about, it feels more like it is a curated experience where you have, as you said, narrative drive to go through the story. But also, you're not just randomly finding items through happenstance. There's items where if you're going to find your ultimate weapon, the idea of an ultimate weapon is very JRPG to me, where a character has an endgame weapon that is the best one for them and you have to do something special to get it or find it. Even a game like Neo, where that takes a lot of elements from JRPGs, it has a lot of randomness to it, where a build that you're trying to create kind of comes down to how much are you willing to farm and grind to find items that will fit your build a little bit better. It's not like there's a mission that you're granted the best weapon in the game and that's the end of it. That's a very JRPG-centric idea to me. It also seems to me that JRPGs are more willing to take freedom away from players for the sake of storytelling. If I think of especially... In the, let's say, the last 10 to 15 years, think of games such as Final Fantasy X, which is a very iconic Final Fantasy video game. And it is, I would say, heralded as a JRPG for certain. However, it doesn't really have an open world in that sense. Like, most parts of Final Fantasy X are actually completely linear. And then there are some hub worlds in which you can walk around and do some side quests and talk to people and stuff. But it's not open in the sense that The Witcher 3 would be an open world game, right? This is completely different because Final Fantasy X has a clear story in mind that it guides you through. Also, it develops a party and, you know, character relationships throughout that process. And those are always in the foreground. The exploration and simulation aspects, they clearly take the back seat. I think that there's always a point in those early JRPGs. I hate to show both of our age here, but Final Fantasy X is actually closer to 20 years old. <laughs> so, oh, God! Yeah. No! I know. I'm old. Yep. But there's always a point in those games, and this is true of not just Final Fantasy, but other classic JRPGs, Chrono Trigger, you know, we've, we've named a few of them, where there's a point at which you are given more control to explore the world. Maybe you get an airship. Maybe you get some kind of vehicle that allows you to travel kind of on your own. A dragon? A dragon, <laughs> yep. It, I think in Nino Kuni, right? You yeah. have like a ship and then later on you have a dragon That's right. in which you can fly. That's right. Hmm. Oh man, now I'm thinking of Nino Kuni. <laughs> but the best part of that is that even that moment where you're granted exploration, it's usually at a point in the story where the party says, okay, everybody, the next thing is the last thing. We should get prepared. 
And so here's access to the world so that you can go and find those special items or do those special quests. Whereas in a game like you mentioned, The Witcher 3, you get the sense that like, okay, well, if I wanted to go over to this difficult area, I could do that right now. Nothing's really stopping me from doing that except my own capability. So I think that that's another distinction where, as you say, it's very much driven by narrative. Everything that you're able to do, the way the world opens up, it all depends on where you are in the story for JRPGs. Yeah, and of course, this is not a clear line that we can draw in the sand and just say, okay, so this is a JRPG because it's narratively focused and this is a Western RPG because it's simulational. I think the degree to which the emphasis is on narration versus simulation, it's an indicator, a weak indicator, but it is an indicator and like helps us to think about these different subgenres of role-playing games. By the way, we haven't at all determined yet what a role-playing game is, and I think maybe we can just skip that because I'm not sure. I mean, there's a lot to say about what makes a role-playing game, but I think for the sake of argument now, we can just focus on the term of JRPG, assuming that we can agree on what a role-playing game is without having to argue, is Zelda really an RPG or an adventure? We don't have to go into that because it's not all that important to the question of whether a JRPG needs to be made in Japan. Right. Of course, there are a whole lot more questions that we need to ponder. But before we go into them, let's take a brief break here. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we are back talking about whether JRPGs need to be made in Japan. And so far, we've established that genre discourse is complicated, that genre descriptions are in flux, and maybe we should add to that list that the function of genres really is 
expectation management. If you go to the movies, then there's a good reason for why under the title of the film, it would say whether it's an action film, a comedy, a drama, a thriller, or a horror film, just so that you know what it is even without looking at a trailer. And in the same way, we apply terms such as JRPG versus Western RPG. This distinction largely exists to manage expectations, because when we say Game X is a JRPG, then people expect different things from it than when we say it's a Western RPG. But usually people don't really say Western RPG, right? They just say RPG or open world RPG. That's a good question too, because I would say Western RPG is for games that are specifically more like a Skyrim, Elder Scrolls-y kind of feel. And I think otherwise people would just say, yeah, it's a role-playing game, or it's a, in Mass Effect's case, it's a shooting game with role-playing game elements, or it's a role-playing game with shooting game elements. It depends on who you ask. And in any case, a JRPG would be kind of a subgenre of RPGs. And that raises the question whether a JRPG is just an RPG made in Japan. Or to phrase it more precisely, is every RPG made in Japan automatically a JRPG? And I would say no. I think that there are RPGs that come from Japan that do not feel like what I would classify a JRPG to be. So I think of a game like Dragon's Dogma, which is a game that was made by Capcom, a Japanese studio, that feels distinctly like a Western RPG to me. There are certain elements in it that do kind of speak to some of the other tropes we were talking about with other JRPGs, but by and large, I mean, that's a kind of a European fantasy world with dragons, and it just seems to me more like a Skyrim than it does a Dragon Quest. Ah, but I also thought of that example, and I kind of struggle with titles such as Dragon's Dogma, and by the way, also the From Software games, which I'm going to come to in just a second. Yes. But if we stick with Dragon's Dogma for now, then I wonder, Dragon's Dogma, that is, well, I would say an open world RPG. It is set in a Western setting, in like a medieval inspired setting. It has dragons, yes, but it's also strongly inspired by Monster Hunter, which is kind of also very much a JRPG, isn't it? And yet, <laughs> it feels, to me, I would classify Monster Hunter in this kind of weird in-between genre, you know? So it's important that we had that discussion about how genres evolve over time. Because Monster Hunter and Dragon's Dogma, to me, they have elements of both. But I would have a hard time saying that they are JRPGs, like I would say Final Fantasy or... Legend of Dragoon or these sort of more old school games from the SNES era seem to me. Yeah. Maybe it has something to do with that kind of random element that Western RPGs have where Monster Hunter and Dragon's Dogma, they have an element of kind of building your character out of things that you're just sort of finding and grinding that gives you a little more freedom outside of the narrative of those games. It's tough, but I, I say those are kind of in this strange no man's land where I would just probably at the end of the day call them RPGs or action RPGs. Yeah, I totally get that eerie sensation of calling them a JRPG because if we think back to the idea of expectations management, and if I were to come to you and I were to say, let's say I don't know anything about video games, and I tell you, I just played Final Fantasy VI, and that was such a beautiful game, but what kind of game is that? And then you would say, well, that's the JRPG. And then I would say, oh, cool, I would like to play more JRPGs because I really love that kind of game. And then you say, well, here's Dragon's Dogma. <laughs> 
I would start playing it and I would say, well, but, but this is nothing this like... at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> has nothing in common with what I just played with Final Fantasy VI. So it makes it really difficult to ascribe just like this broad label of JRPG to all of these games. And he- well, and you know, what's really funny about that too, is that if you say, I just played Final Fantasy VI, what kind of game is that? It's a JRPG. Oh, I'd love to play more of that. And then I say, well, you should play Final Fantasy thirteen. Then you're going to say, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the same kind of game either yeah so what what where's the disconnect there yeah yeah it is yeah really in the final fantasy series in itself it, there's such vast differences in the gameplay structure even from the range of things like very single player narrative focused adventures such as final fantasy 10 which barely give you any freedom and final fantasy 13 of course as well up to things like final fantasy 14 then which <laughs> comes directly after final fantasy 13 and is like an mmo rpg jrpg <laughs> mmo jrpg <laughs> jrpg yeah <laughs> But what do we make of things such as Elden Ring? Because Elden Ring, generally all these From Software games, probably Elden Ring is the best example because it has a lot of role-playing game elements. It has also a lot of a Japanese-ness, I would say, in the way it tells its story, in the way its characters are designed, in the tropes it engages with. However, most people would probably not consider Elden Ring to be a JRPG. No, I don't know that I would either. Elden Ring's kind of a really easy case study for me because there's so much Western influence in it. I mean, George R. R. Martin helped create it. There's a sense of this knighthood and this, you know, the golden order is this very, I would say, English or Eurocentric kind of idea that you don't really see in Japanese media so much. And yet there is something precluding me from saying that it is a Western RPG. And I think... For me, it kind of boils down to what are the themes that it's looking at? And maybe, without getting too much into Elden Ring, the big difference for me is that the theming of JRPGs, what we would call a JRPG, airs more on the side of deeply philosophical than Western RPGs do. I think if you take a Mass Effect, there's a lot of philosophy in that game, but ultimately it's, you know, should good beat evil? <laughs> and what is evil? Well, okay, we can talk about that. Whereas in Elden Ring, <laughs> what does eternal recurrence really mean? And also, how can you transubstantiate two beings into one being? And furthermore, you know, and it keeps going into these very deep, deep, difficult to parse themes, which I think airs more on the JRPG side of things. Totally, yeah. I feel the same way about it. And I think it is one of these fringe cases at least what we can take away from that is that we have so far kind of implicitly established some games that we would consider quintessentially JRPGs, such as the older Final Fantasy games, Dragon Quest, Legend of Dragoon, Secret of Mana, these kinds of games. Nino Kuni, you could easily put into that as well. Definitely. Octopath Traveler, to give a more recent example. They really fit the mold of what it means to be a JRPG and what most people consider to be a JRPG. And then there are these more fringe cases that are, let's say, in the outer circle, if we give it a spatial dimension, in the outer circle of what a JRPG is, Dragon's Dogma, Monster Hunter, Elden Ring, where there are just so many different influences that you wouldn't say it's just a JRPG. That's the difficult thing. As things progress, we can't ignore From Software because From Software is almost a genre unto itself. And as games take from From Software and as From Software keeps putting out new games, I feel that that genre really changes too, to the point where you think, okay, well, 
am what I dissecting an element of a JRPG, a Western RPG, or a From Software RPG? Yes. That's where it gets really murky. But there's all these influences, as you say, that build that game and put it out there for us. Yeah, that's why we have kind of observed how this term of Soulsborne emerged, which is kind of a genre ascription unto itself. Just like the rom-com is something that is more than just a romance and a comedy combined, the Soulsborne is more than just a JRPG with Western influences, you know? Right. I don't know that we're coming to an answer necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> it's really tough, but one thing I've been pondering since we started this conversation, because there are, of course, a lot of people who would contend that JRPGs have to be made in Japan, and that that is a very simple and straightforward distinction that we can make. If it has been made in Japan, it's a JRPG. If not, then not. And that got me thinking how much of the development of a JRPG has to happen in Japan in order for it to be a JRPG. The thought experiment that I want to entertain here is equivalent to the ship of Theseus. Yes. So yeah. It is this idea, like if Theseus builds a ship and then you take, let's say, you know, it's like made out of wooden planks and these wooden planks, they rot away over time. So they need to be replaced by other planks. And then over time, at which point, how many planks can be replaced before it is no longer the ship that Theseus had originally built? What I am gearing at here is that if we take a company like Square Enix, it's called Square Enix Global Holdings, I think. That's like the, the actual title yeah. of the company. So this is an international corporation that publishes a whole lot of what we would consider JRPGs. Now we say Final Fantasy is quintessentially a JRPG. But what if we take a Final Fantasy game and then we have certain aspects of that game that are not made in Japan? For example, character models that might be designed abroad or environments that might be designed by a separate studio in Montreal or whatever, right? They've got studios all over the globe. At which point does a JRPG stop to be a JRPG if the studio is spread out across the globe? It's so tough because you think, okay, if you're making the argument that it needs to be from Japan, but you look at a game like, let's go back to Final Fantasy XIII, Final Fantasy Thirteen was a huge step in the global direction of Final Fantasy. So much work was done. I think even IDOS worked on that when Square Enix bought up IDOS. And there's all of this cross-pollination with different development studios all over the world, meant for a global audience as well. That's the other thing. It's not just meant for the Japanese. And so when you start thinking about that, I think you can't make the argument that it needs to be from Japan. I would say that Final Fantasy Thirteen feels like a JRPG, not because of the Japanese influence, but because of the JRPG influence. Uh-huh. On Final Fantasy XIII. Uh-huh, that's an interesting point. You're kind of disconnecting the, well, let's say, what is nationally Japanese to what is Japanese as a style, as an aesthetic, as a an accumulation of themes and tropes. Is that what you're doing? Yes, I think that's what we have to do. When I say the phrase JRPG, think about it as an acronym and think about it as, as a Japanese role-playing game. I feel JRPG, that phrase has its own meaning separate from an RPG that came from Japan. And I think it's because video games are so much more global now. I mean, you look back in the SNES era, which many people consider to be the golden age of JRPGs, you almost felt like you were part of a secret club for playing games like Final Fantasy or Chrono Trigger because it wasn't a wide distribution meant for a global audience. It was games that were made by a Japanese company that happened to be released globally. But nowadays, even stepping outside of Final Fantasy, you look at something like Pokemon, 
which I would argue has a lot of JRPG roots, those games are meant for the world. They're not meant for a Japanese audience. And so I think it's harder and harder to say that it needs to be Japanese or from Japan to be considered a Japanese role-playing game. <laughs> I think the cultural history of Japan supports that hypothesis because we know that Japan has for a long time been a country that was very much an economic as well as cultural isolation, which also allowed it and empowered it to develop its own kind of cultural aesthetics, which we now would simply refer to as maybe anime aesthetics, you know, if you will, yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. the sake of simplicity <laughs> or the entire anime culture. However, as the economic and cultural barriers began to fall, we have definitely seen that things, yeah, Pokemon, which might have originally been very Japanese-focused, is now an international IP, really. We've even seen it in our Plus episode on how Yakuza works, where we discussed how the earlier Yakuza games, they were not even considered to be released abroad. They were just made specifically for a Japanese audience, addressing specific themes that would be interesting to a Japanese audience and not so much to someone abroad. They would use character names that were not Jack- and I don't know what, Margaret? <laughs> but they used specific Japanese names also to make a point that this is not a game where like a young American boy needs to identify with the protagonist. Yeah, they've got Ichiban as a... What was his last name? Kasuga. Kasuga. Hi. Kasuga Ichiban, yep. Kasuga Ichiban, such names. And over time, though, it became more internationally recognized and opened itself up to the point where they even put deliberate effort into marketing and selling the game abroad. So I think this cultural shift and this economic shift, that is something that's indicative of how the label of JRPG has maybe even emancipated itself to some degree from what it is to be a Japanese role-playing game. I love the idea that you mentioned that if you look at video game history as a microcosm of the last few centuries of Japanese history, that the late 80s to maybe early 2000s was like the Tokugawa period of isolation, <laughs> where certain things eked out, but it wasn't meant for anyone outside of Japan necessarily. In the old days, those kind of tropes of JRPGs, it almost felt like, well, this is so inherently Japanese, it's not going to play to a Western or a global audience. Whereas now... I think games are made with the idea that like, well, there's an audience for this. And if they want to understand the themes and the tropes that we're exploring and, and say something like a Yakuza, like a dragon, they're going to just figure it out. You know, if they they're going to be able to understand the narrative on a basic level. And if they want to look into, I don't know, Japanese coin locker culture because of Yakuza, like a dragon, well, they can look it up online. It's all, it's all available to them. It's not like we have to be secretive about it. Exactly. Yes. And we can even see that in the comparison between the original Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VII Remake. Because I remember that in the original Final Fantasy VII game, the English translation almost seemed like an afterthought. There were like spelling mistakes in there, weird sentence constructions, where it was clear that this game was made for a Japanese market. And then once it kind of reached the international audience, it was like, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe these, those translations, they were clobbered together a little bit. Whereas in the Final Fantasy VII remake, I mean, I'm sure that they still designed it in Japanese first, but it totally caters towards an English translation where I'm sure they have like, you know, very early on developed an English script and recorded English voice actors, casted high profile voice actors for that. So that if you play it in English, there's no disconnect. It doesn't feel like an adaptation anymore, you know? I love that comparison because, again, looking at something like 
Final Fantasy XIII, which I would argue was on the cusp of kind of the globalization of JRPGs in an interesting way. That could be a whole other episode. But um, the idea of the localization of Final Fantasy XIII is good, but as you say, it feels like an adaptation. It feels like a translation. Whereas the part of Final Fantasy VII Remake that I adored, because I've played it now in English and Japanese, and you can tell the English translation was meant to be English because there are jokes in English that only work in English with cadence. And the example that I give is when Cloud is cross-dressed to get into Don Corneo's mansion, there's a part where he says, I think Tifa says like, Cloud? She's like completely aghast at how he looks. And she just, he just says, I know, nailed it, moving on, right? <laughs> it's that, that is such an English joke that I played it in Japanese, very different joke in Japanese. It's just like, yeah, yeah, don't pay attention to it. You know, it's just as funny but I think in the old days, that would have been translated to, yeah, never mind, you know? It wouldn't, it wouldn't have been given the, hey, English-speaking people are going to play this. They have a sense of these characters. We should really try to make it English. Mm, I love this comparison because when you just said, if you translate it literally from Japanese, it would be something like, never mind. I assume, I haven't played it in, in Japanese, but I assume he says something like, kinshinai ne. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or something something like that. And if you translate that to Nevermind, it makes Cloud seem a whole lot more stuck up yes. than as if he's just like, yeah, I know, nailed it. It's like he kind of is in on the joke, it's, you know? It's tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, it's, it's, tongue -in -cheek. it's different. But it's funny because in Japanese, it's still tongue-in-cheek because what he basically says is like, mirai de, like, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Stop uh, it. Okay. <laughs> you know? okay. Yeah. So it's very much the same tone, but they've put the work into translating that tonality and that joke into the localization, which is something that would not have happened 30 years ago. That's for sure. Exactly. So there is definitely a sense that the JRPG as such has developed and opened itself up to an international audience to the degree that definitely isn't at least a step away from this core sample of JRPGs that have existed in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s even, and that exist up until this day. Like there are still very much these, you know, classic JRPG influences and games that pay tribute to it. I mentioned Octopath Traveler several times. Perfect which example. It brings back so many aesthetics and so many elements of traditional JRPGs, including things like not having an open world in the strict sense, having very character and party-focused narratives, and then the engagement with, you know, abstract high-level concepts that are being discussed. There are, of course, also quite some examples of games that might be called or might at first glance seem to be JRPGs that are not made in Japan. A game that, for example, I have a really weird relationship with is Genshin Impact. This obviously is tremendously economically successful. It's a free-to-play, or I would say free-to-start game with a whole lot of, you know, insidious gambling mechanics that come in at a later point. It's made by Yo in China, and it lends itself strongly to this JRPG aesthetic. And even, like, the aesthetic, yeah, with, like, you know, you've got, like, a cute companion, you've got this anime style. Very anime. Yes, very anime. And even to the degree that the logic of how you explore the world, it's, like, strongly influenced by Breath of the Wild and Japanese MMOs. It is a game where if you look at it and if you don't know where it's from, you would probably say, yeah, that's a JRPG. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that you look at something like that, it reminds me of, to take it outside of the video game world for a minute, one of 
the best animated shows, I would say, of all time is Avatar The Last Airbender. You look at a show like that and you think, if you just saw it, you didn't hear it, you would probably think, oh, that looks like an anime that maybe came from Japan. It's often called Amerime, hilariously. It's this sort of taking the aesthetics of that and telling a story from a very different perspective. So I think you're right. I think there are certain games that you look at and you say, I think that's a JRPG based on what I'm seeing. A lot of anime people. <laughs> Would you say that Avatar, can it legitimately be assigned the label of being an anime? I think so. I mean, that it's the same basic conversation we're having here, which is, does anime need to be from Japan? And I think as we continue on this journey of time... <laughs> throughout, you know, all this cross-cultural pollination and everything, I think, yeah, it doesn't have to be. I think you look at a show like that, and I would say that it explores a lot of the same themes that a lot of really great shonen anime explore. So I think similarly, you look at a game like Genshin Impact and you think, well, aesthetically, that looks very JRPG-like. I could see that being a JRPG without it being from Japan. I think it's also really depends on the authentic commitment to the elements that make a JRPG. Because there are obviously many ways in which you can try and capitalize on this sense of nostalgia that a JRPG aesthetic evokes. And I would argue that Genshin Impact does that by, you know, basically capitalizing on such tropes and using them as sugarcoating for gambling mechanics. <laughs> I'm trying to hide the fact that I actually really don't like Genshin you Impact. Yeah. <laughs> re I really don't like this game. <laughs> <It's> terrible. <laughs> I don't know why they're so successful. <laughs> but the thing is that with Avatar, I think that's a little bit more of a heartwarming example for me. Yes, Where actually, very much. I, for a long time, was not aware that that was not from Japan. And if I put something like Avatar The Last Airbender next to something like Demon Slayer, Kimetsu no Yaiba, which is a Japanese anime, I think also produced in cooperation with Netflix, right? Yes, I believe so. That's where we already have like these international overlaps where we can't simply disambiguate anymore. Yeah, more and more these days. I mean, I'm a huge JoJo's Bizarre Adventure fan, and the latest part is completely thanks to Netflix. So yeah, there's these partnerships I think you can't overlook, which is why I think a really interesting example is Toby Fox's work with Undertale and Deltarune. Here's such an interesting example of Undertale is a throwback game meant to kind of aesthetically remind people of Earthbound, which is a quintessentially Japanese RPG, or the Mother series. And it gets so popular in Japan that it gets released in Japanese. There's all of this cross-pollination over there with the Japanese fandom. So here's a American-produced game that takes off in Japan. And I think if you asked a Japanese person, would you consider Undertale to be a JRPG? I think the answer would be yes. I think they would say, yeah, there's a lot of tropes and aesthetics that make me feel like this is a game I played when I was a kid. And then I look at a game like Ghost of Tsushima, which I think has a lot of role-playing game elements. And here again, we have the next iteration of it, which is Western developers telling Japanese stories. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're kind of all over the place. So I think I would say Ghost of Tsushima has a number of different genre elements to it in terms of the kind of function genres that we were talking about before with action and kind of like an open world Assassin's Creed type setup. But I would also say that it has a lot of the same kind of narrative implications that a JRPG would, and it's taking place in Japan, and it's with Japanese characters. And so it's hard for me to say that's not a JRPG or it doesn't have JRPG elements. 
But I'm inclined to say that Ghost of Tsushima is not a JRPG. Oh, here we go. Because of what we've <laughs> what we've established before <laughs> in our distinction between JRPGs and Western RPGs, I would say Ghost of Tsushima definitely feels more like a Western RPG because of this open simulational functionality, because of the focus on a lone hero, because of this Assassin's Creedness yeah. of the game. Because really, Ghost of Tsushima is really just Assassin's Creed in ancient Japan, right? Yes. I think that's what makes it so Western. I agree with you. So now I think as a counterpoint, Ghost of Tsushima, a game that is incredibly popular in Japan and it's been given a stamp of approval, is not a JRPG. <laughs> yes. There's even been quite some discussion about this. I remember like with Ghost of Tsushima, there's been a lot of discussion about to which degree this is a sort of like cultural appropriation. I remember that, yeah. It's a very complicated concept that we have to discuss uh, separately, but this idea of to which degree can we legitimately have a Western developer tell a story that is so significant to the national identity of the Japanese people? I think that aside, I would say in Ghost of Tsushima, it at the latest becomes clear to me when you switch the audio to Japanese and you find... Mm -hmm. That the Japanese audio, that feels to me like an afterthought because I played a couple of hours in Japanese and it doesn't really sync with the lip movements and so on. It's been originally developed in English. Yeah. It's similar to the effect that you would have when you translate the original Final Fantasy VII from Japanese to English. Here it's like translating Ghost of Tsushima from English to Japanese. Or I would say, just to wrap it up, Avatar The Last Airbender with a Japanese dub is strange. Yeah. <laughs> this is why. This genre discussion is so interesting to me because what we're not saying here is throw it all out the window. It's all ambiguous. You, you know, it doesn't help anything. I think what we're getting at here is that at a certain point, genres can kind of transcend themselves and take pieces of themselves with them forward to make them deeper and more interesting to the point where I think anybody can make a JRPG if they're looking at certain aesthetic qualities, certain thematic qualities, narrative qualities. It just comes down to what kind of story you want to tell. And there's something about the JRPG formula that lends itself to these kinds of stories, these kinds of characters, where I don't think it's out of line to say a game like Undertale is a JRPG. Yeah, at least it is a lot easier to have an open mind for that ascription if we kind of, well, I don't want to say if we crack open the term of the JRPG a little bit, but let me put it this way. There are really at least in the in academic discourse, there are two profoundly different approaches to how to define a term. Uh, one would be an essentialist approach where we say, what is an apple? Well, let's name all the necessary and sufficient conditions under which something classes as an apple. <laughs> right. right. So an apple is something that grows on a tree, it's edible, it has a couple of seeds in the middle, and so on, right? We name all of these features, and then if we take all of them together, then we say, and that is an apple. In the same way, we can talk about a JRPG and say, well, a JRPG, that's like a role-playing game, and we name all of these elements, however exact you want to define them, and then we add, but it's made in Japan, or it has this and the specific art style. And if these factors are true, then <laughs> it's a JRPG. And I think that approach, it is really limiting, especially in a time where we have all this cross-pollination with different, you know, cultural engagements, different thematics. We've seen we've discussed a couple of these examples. So that I would rather err on the side of an anti-essentialist definition. An anti-essentialist definition would rather say, okay, we might not be able 
to exactly determine all of the criteria that make a JRPG. Because clearly, a role-playing game made in Japan is not necessarily what we would understand as a JRPG. Right. We had that as an example when I said I played Final Fantasy VI. That's a fantastic game. What is it? It's a JRPG. I want to play more of that. Okay, here's Elden Ring. And then it's like the difference is so great that we can't really say that's the same. Right. So an anti-essentialist approach would say there is a certain amount of attributes that a JRPG has, and they are not they cannot be enumerated exactly. They have to do with things like narrative focus, party management, high-level concepts, such as, you know, fate and so on, or the self. But they don't necessarily have to be there all the time, and there might even be others that come in in their place. So we can't enumerate on all of them in detail, but they're all kind of connected. It's a family relationship that's a little bit more open, and that changes over time. And that's why I would say, to round off my cl closing statement here, <laughs> yes, that's why I would say, do JRPGs need to be made in Japan? I'm going to stick with my answer that I gave originally, which is no, they do not need to be made in Japan. For all intents and purposes, a lot of JRPGs are made in Japan, and there are specific influences of Japanese culture that inform them, but it's not a necessary requirement for something to be a JRPG. This is my favorite part of any genre discussion where we come to the point where we say, because I agree with you, I would say no. And then I would also say, the next question is, well, how do you classify things? And the favorite answer is... Uh, well, it's a case-by-case -case basis kind of thing. Yeah, we do uh, you know, like this and that. Who knows exactly? Yeah, there's not a catch-all, I'm afraid. <laughs> What's your final answer to the question? Have you changed your mind or? I think, no, I think, no, it doesn't. I agree with you. I think that we should look at the tropes. We should look at the themes and the aesthetics. And as I say, case-by-case. -case. And uh, no, I don't think so. I think we're in a brave new world where... The, just like the Meiji period of Japan, things are opening up. <laughs> <laughs> and now the Japanese people come and say, now they're taking the JRPG away from us. It's like, hey, no, 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 we love it. We love it. Yeah, <laughs> we, we love JRPGs deeply and sincerely. And I do not think that's why I have this kind of eerie sensation with Genshin Impact, because I feel like it's noticeable when something tries to dress itself up as a JRPG while not properly committing to its premises. Yes. And I think that's a very good case study in it looks like one but I, nah, let's talk about it a little bit more here <laughs> yeah exactly well of course we're super curious what you think what do you think do jrpgs need to be made in japan please submit your thoughts and opinions on the matter to studyingpixels.com slash contact as always thank you so very much for listening if you like the show then please consider joining studying pixels plus it's great it's fun it's wonderful kind regards of course to richard mertens who edits our show and we will talk again next week see you then Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.